Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and bestselling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm joined by Dominica de Grandis, author of Making Work Visible, Exposing Time Theft to Optimize Work and Flow. Know that Dominica is a principal flow advisor at Tastop, but long before she joined, I was a big fan of her work and built on her ideas on flow and things like the time thieves when developing the flow framework. In this podcast, we'll dig into exactly those themes as well as some of her new thinking, including this fascinating notion that she's come up with of flow safety. So with that, let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to be here with Dominica de Grandis, who has been an inspiration to me. The season of Project, the Project to Product podcast is all about inspirations for Project to Product. I actually built on some very significant parts of Dominica's work in Project to Product. This is the time thieves. We'll be talking about those. These concepts of flow time, they're actually embedded in the book. And I'm just thrilled to be able to talk to you about this today, Dominica. Dominica is known as the foremost expert in Kanban flow within the IT industry. And I've always been looking to her for advice on this. And I'm really thrilled she'll be sharing it with you all today. She's the author of Making Work Visible. So to me, this book was fundamental. I've read it. I refer back to it. Lots of people have the Time Thief stickers on my laptop. I do not, but I'm using them more often than just about anybody in terms of my own work, work with my teams, and work with our organization and customers. And Dominica is a flow advisor at Tastop. So Dominica, your passion is contributing to not only having people read books and use those awesome stickers that you made from those awesome illustrations, but I would actually help large organizations act and do something about these, these bottlenecks that they're finding through these time thieves. And so I'm thrilled that we've been able to collaborate on that with Tastop. But today, we're going to actually be focusing on the things that you've learned with these large organizations and how you've approached helping them, them solve these problems. So why don't we start with you know, just having you reflect a little bit on how you're seeing things changing right now, given the COVID-19 pandemic and the way that you're engaging with organizations, how their world is changing and the impacts that you're seeing. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me here. I'm thrilled to be here. Boy, the news that's been out over the last couple of days is quite revealing in how things are going. I mean, the number of jobs have been lost between mid-March and early April is, according to this Forbes article, is about 17 million. I think that's jumped up now. 22 million but, today in the U.S., yes. Oh, my gosh. So... The number of jobs lost in a period of three weeks, which is over, you know, close to 15 million, it took 18 months for that same number of jobs to be lost during the 2008-2009 recession. And it's a lot, of, it's tech jobs. It's like the second wave of job loss, tech jobs all over the country, across all the sectors, particularly in the Bay Area. And the impact that this is having we had way too much work in progress going on and anxiety from conflicting priorities and the other time thieves before. Now that's a much higher degree. And I see organizations that I'm working with, people at enterprises, the priorities are changing so quickly. Everything that had been a really high priority, projects being canceled, people being laid off. And so I think there's an amount of additional fear that people are finding themselves in and that they're completely overloaded. They're bouncing back and forth between the five things that they had planned to get done today, that they need to get done today, 
plus the back-to-back meetings that they're in. Working from home, I hear this from everybody. People initially thought that they'd be able to, oh, I don't have to commute, I can work from home, I'll have time to cook or eat better. And But now there's back-to-back meetings all day long and people not really being able to have time to think and make important decisions and do their important work until nighttime, right? Until they can get off of their, their meetings. When you're lucky, if you've got five things planned for the day, you're lucky if you can finish two of them. And so then more work in progress piles up, more neglected work piles up. So I think now more than ever, it's critical to tackle priorities and for leaders to be crystal clear on the parties, what they are, so the teams are able to prioritize accordingly and hopefully limit their work in progress. I'm concerned about burnout in the industry right now. Burnout is really about exhaustion, cynicism, and loss of confidence. This is huge. And I kind of sense it when I'm on calls with people, their sense of a loss of of confidence. I don't know if you remember, but the DevOps Enterprise Summit where Christina Maslach talked about burnout and there's this Maslach burnout inventory, MBI. And I actually went and took it. It's like $15 for an individual, but you can survey your whole team or your whole department with that inventory to try and get a read on the cognitive overload that teams are, what they're having to deal with right now. And are teams susceptible to higher levels of burnout, lost energy, and just the confidence levels. If people aren't confident, actions are driven by confidence, not by insecurities, right? And so we want people to be innovative and to be confident and self-assured in what they're doing in order to make it through these times. And so if that confidence is lost, that's a big red flag that I think leaders need to sort of keep their eye on because people are going to get exhausted from that, especially all these parents who are having to work at home with lots of kids. It's kind of fun to see all the children on the, on the Zoom calls. But I think now more than ever, we need to take a look at the load on the teams. How much work in progress do these teams have and recognize the time thieves that are going to be impacting teams, impacting organizations, and their ability to actually deliver the business outcomes that are so badly needed right now for companies to be effective and make it through the turning point. Yeah, and Dominica, as as usual, when I talk to you, just clarified something that I was exposed to yesterday for me. So I'll quickly share this with you. would love to get your take on it. But I was working with an IT executive at a very large company, well, I actually want to pause there for a second because I think one of the most important things to me that I've noticed with making work visible with the time thieves and, and with your work in general is that it applies, it's kind of fractal, like three-level fractal. It applies at the individual level, it applies at the team level, and then at the organization level. So I'm going to just quickly jump. I actually want us to explore all three of those, but uh, I'm going to jump to the organization level one where this individual, who's of course themselves putting a ton of effort right now into helping thousands of people across many, many teams get through this and continue working. And we started measuring the flow metrics and we got the usual result. I think the most common result that we see is your first time thief, too much work in progress, right? So might be no surprise to you. It's still a 
something of a surprise whenever we actually detect it with real data and so on. So anyway, we got this result where there was across a large number of teams in this one very large product value stream, they had too much work in progress. And you know, seeing that data, what was actually happening is that things were taking two months to do, things that usually really should be in, within a two-week sprint, were actually, when we were measuring them, they were taking two months to do. And it was obvious from this that there was basically a multiple, the flow load number was two or three times higher than it should have been. And so the executives actually seeing this, and this is the, the interesting irony, is that without the shared perspective of too much work in progress being bad, not good, the teams were actually saying, no, we do not, we have to get through this. We do not have time to now basically be measuring our work and looking at what's wrong and looking how we actually reduce that. So this blew my mind. And this, I, I heard this yesterday and I, I love hearing these kinds of things. It's, he actually said, I'm going to have you stop all business work, all of it, defects, features, all of it, until we can actually help you get your work in progress under control, demonstrate that this is too much, which is making you thrash, get overloaded and potentially burned out. And by doing that, the business side is actually going to understand that they can't keep doing this, right? If we keep going like we're going in the chaos that we've seen from the last four weeks, mm -hmm. this is unsustainable. So can you just tell us a bit more about your approach of, because I think you've become very systematic and clear in helping organizations spot this, right? This leader, they had read your book. Many, many people still need to. How do you approach this? Because it just seems so backwards to me sometimes where it's like the teams themselves feel that they need to do this. While in this case, and in some others I know, leadership is actually saying, no, 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 stop. Let's actually look at your flow. Let's look at your whip. Yeah. I sort of ease into it because change is hard for folks. You know, like we don't go to the doctor until we really need to. Now we really don't go to the doctor. And so to try and get people to really see how much low, flow load they have, I start by asking, and I'm doing this remote now because I'm not traveling to do workshops. So I'm doing sessions with companies remote, but still making them visible and engaging. And I start by just getting to some fundamental questions that people will right away become engaged with and interact with. And that is what prevents you from getting your work done? Right? What randomizes your day and prevents you from completing work? And then they'll go off and you'll get this great big long list. And usually on that list is too much work, too many conflicting priorities. We can't say no. I see this all the time. We don't have we are not empowered to say no. Even though I've heard their leadership say, we're going to stop taking on, they believe that they're not empowered to push back and say that they're full. Other items that come up, you know, there's all these dependencies on third parties that are completely outside of our control and yada, yada, yada. There's this whole list that they come up with. And then I ask them to flip that around and identify the things that the people who are making requests from them, the product owners, the people on the business side, people upstream, people downstream who are asking them to do things, what are they grumbling about? What are they not that pleased about? And so they, they take a hard look at that and they say, okay, well, they're not happy that things are taking longer. Things take too long. It's sort of a universal response to that question. And it doesn't matter 
how big the company is. Like you said, at the highest level or at the team level, things take too long. Or the other answer to that question is that there's this invisible black box. They can't see into IT. They can't see where their request went. Like I asked for this thing two months ago, where'd it go? I you know, have no visibility on it. And so that gets the conversation started about really important factors. Like where are these business requests or are these tech debt requests? Why are they taking so long? And then the team can say, well, they're taking so long because we have all this work in progress and all the reasons that they put on their list. And then I asked people to identify, to kind of vote. Like if there were one thing that you could just improve a wee bit, what would that one thing be? So then now everybody has a voice in the matter. Everybody's voice is heard. I mean, sometimes the problem is a mandate comes down from up above and the teams themselves haven't had any participation, any voice, any say in the matter for a solution. And if the team is involved in contributing to the solution, then they're going to have skin in the game and they're going to be much more involved. So I'm trying to get their involvement because if not, then we sometimes see a bit of passive aggressiveness going on where they say that they'll do something. Yes, we'll make our work visible. We'll, we'll create tickets and artifacts in our tools to make them visible, but then, but then they don't. Or yes, we'll start this experiment and then people don't show up to the meeting. So I'm really trying to get engagement at all levels for people to understand and to have some alignment of what the problem really is. Why are things taking so long? And it's because the teams are completely overloaded and they're context switching and they get interrupted all the time. And it's just, there's not enough time to reflect and focus. And so once we have an understanding and alignment on that, and the teams have sort of voted on what they would like to experiment with, what they want to do to almost invariably what comes up is we need to make upstream work more visible so that we can really see the big picture of all that's being requested of us. And the companies that are really learning quickly are the ones who are making all the work in progress visible. Sometimes what I'll see is the flow load, it will look low compared to the flow velocity or the throughput that's occurring. And when I dig into that, it turns out that there's all this invisible web. Right. Like the flow load isn't including all the upstream work that's happening. And so that leads to this, they're just optimizing for their two-week sprint. And that's all the data that they're looking at. So I'm trying to broaden that perspective. Like we need to look at the big picture. We need to look at the whole system. When the business right now needs something to be done quickly, like we need to start measuring, this is when flow time is so critical. We need to start measuring when they first said, let's do this, not three months later after there'd been some requirements processing and some analysis and some design work, and then it goes into this sprint. And then now that's when we just start the clock, right? Let's look at the big picture. So I think Dominic, I want to dig into some of those things in a moment, but I think that to me, the big picture thing out of all of that is, and I've had the privilege to actually be able to sit in on these sessions that you're doing, these now remote workshops, right? One that blew my mind was when you were doing it with 60, 70 different people. 
at a time where I thought no one would pay attention to anything anyone was saying. But <laughs> what, what we heard is hours and hours of remote engagement. And it took me days to process what I witnessed there with this workshop that you were running, which is that the fact that the way that you're addressing people with multiple levels, it actually showcases just how much people do want to improve. And I think at a leadership level, a senior leadership level, there is this understanding in companies with great leadership that this kind of time, this kind of turning point in the age of software, this massive downturn, the companies that focus on learning and improvement are the ones that thrive. And it's in part because it helps them hone their strategies. It's in part because it actually helps people with dealing with these situations and gets them into their flow and gets them improving. So the flow, the psychological state of flow is actually all about this personal level of continual improvement, feeling engaged to something because you're getting better at it, an individual, a team, and, and even at, a, at an organization level. So I'm a big believer in, in your approach that we're, the way that many organizations will get through this is through this focus on, on improvement, on removing bottlenecks, on preventing burnout, because we know this is not a sprint, right? This is a marathon or multiple marathons for so many people. So mm -hmm. any approach that drives burnout will be ineffective in the path to this recovery. I think if we buy into some of the models that we see from, you know, that I've embedded from Carlota Perez and Project to Product and, and written about recently. So I just love your approach in, again, helping this at multiple levels of the organizations, because I think so many organizations out there, so many teams out there, so many software and IT shops out there, they're seeing that this is the time to improve, right? This is not the time to spend crazy amounts of dollars. This is the time to help the, what they've got improve, to rebalance and to focus. So I'd like to now jump into one of the, I think, the most interesting learnings to me before we get back to the time thieves and some of the flow metrics is what you just said, which is to improve, you actually need, you know, it's not just the teams themselves. It's not the whole the product value stream. If leadership's out of it, if the teams are out of it, everyone might be wanting to do the same thing, but people are basically at different points in the conversation. And you've introduced me, one of the most profound things I've learned from you over the last six months has been this concept that you've started talking about of flow safety. Mm -hmm. So can you just Take us through that, kind of how we learned it, because I think it's obviously related to Gene's unicorn project notion of psychological safety, one of the, one of the five ideals, but you've actually been acting on it as a very prescriptive way. And I think it's been very helpful in doing what you just described. So, so take us through that, please. Okay. One thing that I like to do is have teams present their findings to leadership so we may break off into a smaller group and do some work, but then what do they learn from that? What do they decide they need to do to improve their flow time or address these business concerns? And it's a challenge for a lot of people to get up and present and speak in front of their leadership and their boss's boss. And so before we have them do that, I try and set the stage and let everybody know that the single most thing that's going to improve your metrics, your flow metrics, is psychological safety and knowing that you're not going to be beat up or put down if you're going to get up there and present what something that you've just come up with. And so I try and introduce some of the concepts that we see in a generative culture versus a culture where there's a lot of blame or there's a lot of in making other people look good so you can look good. And now even more so, so people are trying to hold on to their jobs and help people understand that it's scary to get up and 
present these things into their leadership, especially if they don't have a history of doing that. And so trying to set a regular cadence where people can become comfortable presenting their ideas to leadership, I think is critical. It prepares people. So we spend some time practicing, like practice in front of me because I'm, and I'll give you feedback. Why does it matter? What metrics are you going to use? It may, experiments by their very nature are prone to fail. And so we do talk a lot in the DevOps community about failure and acceptance, but out there sort of in the real world at some of these enterprises, yeah. people are, they're fearful. And so that's why the idea of the experiment is so powerful because an experiment is just, we're just looking at the data, right? Like we think this, we're going to do these activities. Here's the metrics that we're going to capture. And because most of the time they want to experiment with things taking too long or things being invisible or having too much flow load, the experiment's usually based on that. And so I want to just set the stage where this should be a safe forum for people who are just learning how to do this. Some of them just really understanding why measuring flow time and why not just measuring deployment lead time is important to get them more comfortable and to challenge them to make sure they've covered all their bases and that time frame and to keep them really short like maybe four to six weeks or maybe even shorter to try and get the first experiment to sort of be a wee bit of a win so that they increases their confidence increases their self-esteem hey i got up and i presented this to leadership and i didn't get beat up or John got up and presented it to leadership. I thought he was going to get beat up and he didn't. And Kristen got up there too and did it. And so now people are motivated to experiment, especially when they get sponsorship from leadership to do their, do their three to four week or four to six week experiment. And then the, yeah, I'll tell you what the challenge is, Mick, it's the follow-up. So people are very energized when they have the hope that they're going to be able to solve some of these things that are preventing them from getting their work done. And so there's this boost in energy. But then sometimes what happens is then they, they come out of the workshop and now they've got 100 emails they've got to deal with and they've fallen a little bit behind and, and then the panic sort of sets in. So I try and prepare leadership beforehand to say that it's going to be critical for you to help the teams understand that they're going to have allocated capacity to run with these experiments so that we can make these improvements during this time of chaos. Because if we're not continually finding ways to improve, like you said, we're just going to run down a, a horrible spiral. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what struck me in that story yesterday, right? Is that that IT executive said, let's stop all work so that you just focus on time to improve, right? It, do, it does not need to be that drastic. If, if it's actually prioritization of time to improve through this, you might not need to have everyone stop all of their coding or other delivery activities. So I think that's just such an important message that you're making is that this is, it's important that everyone provide their teams with that time right now to do that improvement and to prioritize that improvement. Yeah, I do try and sort of put a bug in people's ears to think about having setting time during business hours for people to have a little bit of time to breathe. 
time to reflect. We get our best ideas when, when we have time to think, when we have time to breathe. And we used to have this concept of like flow Thursday or try and get flow hours in there. I, I do think it's be good to have it on a daily basis. And I know with all the different time zones, it's such a struggle, but I was just thinking about this this morning, like now more than ever, if people can just, I mean, even just 15 minutes, 15 minutes just to sort of think, self-assess, assess the day, recollect your thoughts and prioritize and just have time to think and breathe. I, I was taking time this morning to do that. And I realized something really important that, you know, I've got going on this afternoon and I completely forgot about it because I, I've been in meetings. And so I just, I just allocated 15 minutes on the calendar before that time so I could really be clear and centered and grounded. And I wish this for everybody that you can just have a few minutes during these times every day to just ground yourself and have time to think and reflect for how you're going to manage your day. And if you've got people on the West Coast and people on the East Coast and people in Europe, well, then how do you do that? Well, maybe find the times that do overlap. So if you're on the West Coast and if you've got calls with people on the East Coast, then maybe you do absolutely have to reserve whatever nine to noon or something Pacific time for those meetings. And then, and if you're on the East Coast and you're working with people in Europe, same thing, those for Europe would be the afternoon slot and East Coast the morning time. But, but where can we just eke out some time to think and reflect instead of constant interruptions and context switching that are just driving the problems with the time thieves? Right. Now you're making me reflect that Flow Thursdays, this, that thing I put in place, is, are no longer sufficient. <laughs> because I think it's so key that people understand the, the benefits that we can get from a focus on improvement. This senior executive I, I keep referring to from yesterday, he realizes that if they reduce that whip, they're going to go from two months to two weeks. Yes! Right? <laughs> and he's now got the data backing that, and he just yeah. wants the team to see that as well. And they're going to be happier, and they'll be less burned out, and they won't feel like they'll, feel, yeah. you know, they'll actually participate maybe in that next meeting rather than, than paying partial attention and not doing a good job on either thing. So just the sheer productivity and happiness yield that's available by doing those improvements, it's so tremendous based on all the data that we've seen. Because in this time where there has to be a focus on delivering value, there has to be a focus on, on reducing burnout, going from two months of value delivery to two weeks is a really, really significant thing. Yeah. A couple of questions that I sometimes suggest team leaders and managers put in a, like an NPS score, you know, the traditional net promoter score question is I, on a scale of, you know, one to 10, I would rate this, you know, I would invite a colleague. I would want a colleague to come work here, you know, maybe swap out. I mean, it's a quick question, but additionally to measure flow safety, which is really a measure of trust, right? What about questions like my leadership is open to hearing bad news because if people are afraid to tell the boss bad news, then the boss is the last person to know what's going on. And then it's too late for them to do anything about it. That's a horrible place to be. Or people on our team trust one another. Do people trust one another on the team? Or when we do have 
a failure or maybe failure is too strong of a word, but maybe if one of our experiments does go a bit south, is that causing inquiry versus blame? And so given those kinds of questions, it'd be, I think, a useful, very quick survey with a quick couple of questions. Hopefully people will feel safe answering those questions, but then leaders can get a read on the level of trust and psychological safety that teams have. A, I think that's a great idea, but B, I, I wanted to illustrate my own learning, because I think you're ahead of many people in this regard, of seeing the psychological and the, the flow safety working and not working. So for me, the, the start thing of it not working was when, when we were working with, with an organization, their leadership was wanting to see the flow metrics for their product value streams as they do their project-to-product transformation. Mm-hmm. And then this one part of the organization, this, this one part of the business kept saying, no, 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 we're not ready, we're not ready, which didn't quite make sense. To me at the time, it's like, well... Wait, wait, they're not ready for what? They're not ready for flow metrics. They're not okay. ready for seeing things. And it didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to leaders, to some of the leaders I was working with, because like the whole goal was to help them find their bottlenecks and invest in their bottlenecks, right? Uh-huh. And then we dug into it. And the reason they weren't ready is because they were not 100% agile. So Dominica, you can explain to me later what 100% agile means, because I'm not sure I know what it means. But, but <laughs> there was this notion that they had to be 100% agile. And if the data showed that they were not 100% agile, then it would be bad and they'd be looked upon negatively, right? Contrast that now with this other organization who was, you were working with them, and they were saying, here are bottlenecks. And they were showcasing their bottlenecks and their problems that they saw you know, with the flow metrics from not only too much width, but dependencies. We'll get to some of those time feeds in a second because it just highlighted mm-hmm. with data the time feeds. But they were showing these to two, three I think three levels up the org chart. These are problems. This is what we do. This is how we're thinking about it. This is where, where we might need some help. We, you know, we can't fix this. That organization, so in the case of the flow safety, leadership now sees that. And because they see it, if they actually help re- reduce that bottleneck, it could be an upstream bottleneck. It could be a too long a manual security review, whatever it is. If they reduce that bottleneck, all of a sudden that team is so much happier and work is flowing so much faster and they're getting feedback so much faster. The scary thing to me is if that team didn't surface that bottleneck, all of a sudden, in some senior executive meeting, the leadership could actually cut staff that were the only thing even allowing any flow through that bottleneck. So they could actually make the bottleneck 10 times worse by not having that perspective of the team. And the only way that can surface is through safety and data, I think. So, mm-hmm. and I think you know, the thing that really inspired me with how you approached your work with, with those teams is to say, well, to remove those bottlenecks, because this is highly complex. None of this is easy. This is very difficult. Difficult tech stacks, difficult value streams, large team structures is through that experimentation. And if the experimentation doesn't have safety, it becomes meaningless. It becomes these little things that you can claim success on that don't actually make things go twice as fast or don't actually cut whip in half and so on. I guess, is that accurate to say is that without that flow safety, you, you can't have, you know, we've been talking a lot about data-driven continuous improvement. You can't have that without the flow safety because that feedback won't come up and the experimentation needed to improve just won't be there. Just tell us a little bit, Dominic, about how that, you know, I've been again learning through the last few months of how experimentation is this, and I've, you know, I've always been a fan of their experimentation, but it's that combination of ex- experimentation and flow safety that's critical to, I think, make meaningful changes. Not these little things that that are easy to say yes to or claim victories on, but really meaningful structural changes that can actually double your velocity, cut your flow time in half. 
the reason it's critical and necessary to have the full safety is to have the trust in the organization so that team members trust each other and they have each other's back and they have the resilience to persevere, right? If we're not resilient and we can't persevere, then we're not going to carry on the experiment. And I've seen that where people get all excited, they want to do this experiment, and then I meet with them the following week and something's overtaken them and, and the experiment dies. We need to set these teams up to be successful so that the experiment continues on throughout the period of time so that we can get learnings out of that. Whether the hypothesis was correct or not, there's a learning out of that that then they can take into their next experiment. It's like continuous experimentation. And if we don't have the trust amongst the teams or there's fear from being publicly humiliated, then people, they'll drop out. They won't want to do that. Right. And then the other, I think the other key learning for me, and i like, like get your thoughts on this, is f- to have fast experimentation, that's culture of experimentation, you need feedback. You need to know if the experiment worked or didn't. And the thing that struck me, and that, you know, that's something I'm, I'm just very happy about in terms of the flow metrics, providing a way of measuring the outcomes of experiments that you're structuring around the five time thieves, mm-hmm. is that they provide the teams with faster feedback. So you actually see, we did this experiment, did our velocity increase? Did our whip drop or not? And they're much faster feedback than I think some of what we've heard people complain about is that by the time that you get in a large IT organization, by the time that you get feedback from a customer, you could be in release cycle, longer release cycles, quarterly ones potentially. Of course, everyone's trying to shorten those, but it's often reality. Or in terms of feedback on business results, you could be in, in into many months. So I think it's been great to see how you've been using results in terms of flow metrics is a fast feedback cycle, while of course the end goal of, of any flow metrics improvements is to drive more business results and more success for the organization. Mm-hmm. So, so Dominica, I want to now dig in on how you're approaching measurement, because I think one of the other really key things that I want to get across to people from Making Work Visible from your book is how important the way that we measure is, what we measure is. I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to understand the pitfalls of local optimization. But when I read the way that you described flow time and flow efficiency and making work visible, I thought, finally, there's an accurate, meaningful, and end-to-end description of how we should treat time. In Agile and DevOps, we've had kind of these silo definitions, right, where code commit to code deploy is important, but that's really cycle time. If you look at lean literature, if you look at the way that, you know, we learned how to manage physical production at scale, the differences between lead time, flow time, and cycle time were critical. So I basically took that work, embedded it into project to product, and made it, I think, one of the most core parts of the, of the flow framework. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've really been thinking about time over all these years and, and why that's so important to understanding whether an experimental outcome did deliver something or didn't? Yeah. Well, just about everywhere I go, People, because of how they're being measured by their functional team, they're optimizing for when they get work and when they're done with it, which leads to a false sense of security, like, go team, like, we're doing well. But yet, the business outcomes are still negligible. And so trying to get this point across that it doesn't really matter how fast your team is performing, 
when the bottleneck lays elsewhere. And also, it's not just about your team, if you will. (laughs) It's not just about you. It's about your whole organization and what it takes to have something available for your customer to pick off the shelf. Like, are the cornflakes on the shelf or not? And if the cornflakes aren't on the shelf yet because something is still in test complete or UAT or it hasn't been delivered yet or it's been delivered but the feature flag is still sitting in a dark mode and the customer still can't access it, then all this work you've done up until that point that's taken potentially months still is not contributing to business value. And so we really need to look at this end-to-end time and it's the elapsed time. Like the clock doesn't stop just because it's the weekend or a holiday or, you know, it's off at a third-party vendor, right? The customer doesn't really care. Like if you told them 30 days, when are they going to get it 30 days from now? They expect it 30 days from now in their hands, usable, functional. They're not going to count 30 days plus four weekend days plus a holiday, right? So it's when the customer is expecting that. And it could be the consumer, or if it's an internal product ice stream, then it could be your internal customer who's, who's waiting for that. So then all this conversation comes up. Well, we're waiting on this other team to give us this input. You know, we have all these dependencies and these dependencies, they could be unknown. It's this thief unknown or invisible dependencies rearing its ugly head. And it's a, I call it the big bully thief because it's so pervasive. You know, small agile teams are pervasive across IT and it makes sense, right? Like nothing beats a talented, motivated, cohesive team. I I talk about this in my book that makes fast decisions and they can produce amazing results. Well, okay. If it's a situation where the team has everything it needs to design and build and deploy, you know, lucky you. (laughs) But in large organizations, most teams aren't lucky in that regard. It's impractical for lots and lots of people working on lots of different projects to be aware of every decision that's going to impact them, like architecture changes or some new third-party integration or API. So the more teams, the higher the probability that more dependencies are going to sort of sneak into their day, their project, whatever, increasing their work in progress. The more work in progress, the higher the probability that thief unknown dependencies is going to hunt them down. And so this is why it's so critical to expose dependencies. So I've been doing this dependency matrix exercise with some teams and I have them, you know, maybe some of you are familiar with this, but you've got all the role. I do it with roles lately because not just teams, because we want to get all the roles involved that are part of the value stream, that are partaking in all the activities needed to deliver business value to customers. And so we'll have all the roles listed. And then I'll say, I'll ask them to highlight, like with an exclamation mark, the cell where there's the intersection of dependencies that are especially painful or especially cause long wait times. Not every dependency that they have, because then they'd mark the whole matrix up, but just points that we really want to bring visibility to. We think that's a bottleneck. Let's expose that. And usually what happened when I did this the other week was, oh, we thought we had all the roles in, but no, no, we need to add the system analysts. 
we need to get UAT into here. And so given now a view of these dependencies that we think are causing delay in stories being delivered, or we're just, you know, waiting for stories to be complete. Given that now, let's have a look at flow metrics to see if the bottlenecks are showing up, you know, where they're showing up potentially in your flow efficiency. So flow efficiency being a measure of wait time versus work time. Is the amount of time work is sitting in a wait state a lot higher than the amount of time work is sitting in a work state versus a wait state? And, and usually it's shocking when people see the flow efficiency metric. How much time is actually where work is sitting there waiting? Waiting on this meeting to finish, right? Waiting, waiting on the third-party vendor, waiting on upstream teams to provide the go-ahead, the funding, the approvals, the triage, the, the prioritization for this work to flow. Yeah, I think to me, it's been a fascinating experience as well, right? Because the points that you make around sort of this approach to agile teams, I think are so profound, right? In the end, the business needs outcomes to deliver the customers. If we don't take that customer's point of view on time, on value, what are we doing? And I think like you, I can't count the number of organizations I've worked with who their definition of 100% agile is we've created the Spotify model and we're done. We've deployed mm -hmm. Jira or some other agile tool and we're done. And that's 100% agile. Those are nice activities, probably, you know, depending on, on the context that you're working in, but they do not measure outcomes. And I think yeah, the, the kinds of learnings I've seen from your work in terms of what is the flow efficiency? What are the bottlenecks? Are you even measuring the wait states? What does it matter if you've deployed everyone to JIRA if the wait states are not visible and where they're being blocked on, let's say, the meeting getting rescheduled four times to get some approval, which is causing everyone to thrash on or work on less relevant things until that's visible. And again, I think there's a few things... I want to, everyone to take away from this is your, your entire thesis on making work visible, how important that is. If you don't have your wait states visible, you don't know your flow efficiency. If you know your flow efficiency, but you don't have the safety for people to communicate where that's actually coming from, you won't fix that bottleneck. You don't fix that bottleneck, you might cut resources in exactly the wrong place and make thousands of developers much less efficient than they were rather than, than helping them through this. So I think, again, your, your guides, and you know, now I'm wanting a part two of this, which we'll might need to schedule, because I think we actually, the, the vocabulary of making work visible, of knowing the five time thieves is so critical. And of course, of taking a, a customer and business and end-to-end -end centric way of, of measuring that through things like flow time and flow efficiency are the path through this. And yeah. And, you know, flow efficiency is a big metric. It's, I do think of it as an advanced metric because a lot of the organizations I'm working with, they don't have those wait states. And if there's fear of putting in a wait state mm -hmm. because they don't want to make their buddy look bad, I, I see that a lot too. No, I, right. you know, I don't want to place blame. I don't want to make anybody look bad. And so to get this, this mindset that it's not, a, it's not about your buddy, it's about this data What's that saying? If, if we've got data, let's look at the data. If we're just gone by opinions, well, then let's go with mine. Yeah, that's good. But in order to get those wait states in your tool, so you have a digital representation of how long work is actually sitting in those states and that teams are moving their work through the various states in a timely fashion can be, be tricky. That requires a level of 
commitment, which again plays into the experiment. Okay, well, let's just try this for a week. Let's just see what happens. If it's if it's not working out, then we'll try something else. That helps people feel a sense of, of relief. But it's usually why I will start people out really thinking about flow load and the amount of whip and bottlenecks. Because if we just try and start yeah. the flow efficiency, it's it's like it's it's too hard, too soon, too fast. There's a saying, start where you are. You don't have to have everything perfect yet before you get started. Your, your reference of being 100% agile. There is fear of perfection and we need things to look perfect. But small baby steps, small J, what we call little J curve changes to gradually get you where you need to be as quickly as possible versus trying to insert is something that's too hard on people and they're going to push back on it. I, I could not agree more. And I think it's, you know, this, this concept we've been coming up with, this data-driven continuum improvement, I think maybe now given the suggestion that you're having that we all have some time in every day, maybe it's, it should be daily data-driven improvement or something of that sort. I, I think that's such a strong message right now. I think to leaders, to teams, and, and to individuals that you're sending is this is the time to focus on that. And focusing on that will actually hit you know, some of the things that you and I are, are most concerned about, right? Which is organizations surviving and thriving through this because that's how these jobs will be saved is if organizations are able to deliver more, to continue innovating and, and to place their talent and staff's attention on, on where they're going to get the most results and get feedback because the market's going to continue changing so quickly. Anyone who is behind on a digital strategy right now wishes they were probably ahead and needs to move that much faster. Yeah. And, you know, your other focus on improvement. And then, like you're saying, is, is everyone being on board for that? The different layers of leadership supporting that, providing that thing that is so important to great organizations, which is bad news traveling fast, problems traveling fast, and, and the safety being there. So, Dominica, we're at time. And just again, so I think some amazing advice for leaders and for teams and for individuals getting through this time and, and finding their own flow. Dominica, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Well, email or Twitter or LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is probably a good place. Dominica. D Grandis on LinkedIn, or for some reason I haven't been on Twitter as much, but I am Dominica D on Twitter. And so feel free to reach out to me at either place. Yeah. And I could not recommend on Amazon or wherever else you're buying your books, um, making work visible. I could not recommend it more highly. So I hope people continue reading that book. I think it's more important now than ever. So Dominica, thank you so much. I think there was just such great advice in there and some very actionable advice. And I think the path that you present of starting with with the lower hanging through the flow load before you work your way up to flow efficiency. I think there's you know, some, some critical thinking in there that I hope others are applying quickly. So thank you. Thank you. A huge thank you to Domenica for joining me on this episode. And what I hope you will agree was a terrific conversation. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MickPlus1 or Project to Product. Domenica's Twitter handle is at Dominica D. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book, and remember that all other proceeds go to supporting women and minority technology. Dominica's book, Making Work Visible, is also available on IT Revolution Press. So with that, thanks, stay safe, and until next time.